take your Bibles and go to Romans chapter 5. Romans chapter 5. Romans chapter 5, and we're going to begin reading in verse 6. And as we prepare to read the Word of God, today, today's message is a very simple gospel message on a day that we celebrate the recovery of the gospel. And so this morning, the title of the message is, is called three, The Three Wonders of the Gospel. The Three Wonders of the Gospel. Stand with me as we read God's Word together. The Apostle Paul writes this. He says in verse 6, For while we were still weak, at the right time Christ died for the ungodly. For one will scarcely die for a righteous person, though perhaps for a good person one would dare even to die. But God shows his love for us in that while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. Since therefore we have now been justified by his blood, much more shall we be saved by him from the wrath of God. For if while we were enemies we were reconciled to God by the death of his son, much more now that we are reconciled shall we be saved by his life. More than that, we also rejoice in God through our Lord Jesus Christ, through whom we have now received reconciliation. This is the word of the Lord. You may be seated. This morning I want to begin the message by thinking of an image, the stairway to heaven. And by that I do not mean the Led Zeppelin song. Some years before 1517, when Martin Luther nailed the 95 Theses to the door of All Saints Church there in Wittenberg, Germany, Luther, who was a Catholic monk with a troubled soul, he won a trip to Rome. While he was there in Rome visiting, he took the opportunity to climb what is called the Scala Sancta, which is supposedly the staircase that was climbed by the Lord Jesus Christ when he stood before Pontius Pilate and it had been extracted and brought to Rome. By climbing it and kissing each staircase, each step, and saying the Lord's Prayer, Luther believed, or at least he was told, that a soul would escape purgatory. And he specifically hoped by climbing the staircase, he would be able to rescue the soul of his grandfather. However, when he reached the top of the staircase, which took, as you can imagine, a bit of time, a thought entered into his mind, and it was this, how do I really know that this works? How do I really know that this is true? That right there was the very beginning of many questions in Luther's mind that he would also become, begin to ask the church leaders of his time, which then led to the nailing of the 95 theses to the church door. 
So, as a result of Luther's consistent questions and constant questioning the traditions of the church, the church decided that they would send him to the town of Wittenberg. And they assigned him a task, and the task was, of all things, to teach the Bible verse by verse. And so, there at the university in Wittenberg, he began to teach the Bible. And one of those books that he began to teach was the book of Romans. He would also teach the book of Galatians. He would also teach the book of Genesis and some of the Psalms. And as he taught, one night, as he was in his monastery tower, he began reading Romans chapter 1 and verse 17. And it was there that night, as he was preparing his lessons, as he was reading the book of Romans, that Luther made an incredible discovery that to you and I would seem obvious, but for Luther had remained obscure as well as for most people at that time. And do you know what the discovery was? Here it is. A person no matter what sin they have committed, can be completely forgiven and made right with God by trusting in Jesus Christ for salvation. And that, at that moment, the wonderful light of the gospel broke through Luther's heart And he fully realized there in that monastery tower, reading the book of Romans, as the light of the gospel began to show, he realized that religion, religion is an impossible staircase that never ends. It's like a moving escalator that only increases its speed the harder you try to climb up the steps. And so... It, 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 it demands an endless, it's, the demands of religion are endless and the promises of religion are empty. And guess what? That stands true even today. It is the same truth about religion. And people today are no different than the people who lived in Luther's time. People are no different. Think about it. People are trying to earn their way. Would you not agree with that? People are trying to prove their own goodness. Just turn on TV. That's all you see in the, in the, in the news and the media is a constant parade of pe- people trying to prove their own moral goodness, trying to signal to us their virtues. And ultimately people are all, today are in the same day, in the same way in Luther's time are trying to find peace in life. And that might be you this morning. That very well might be you. Maybe you're here today and you're trying to earn your way. And you think, even maybe so subtly in your heart, that you can earn your way to God. Or, or maybe you're living a life just trying to prove to others how good you are. Or, or maybe you're here today and, and you are seeking some kind of peace. And you don't know what the peace is. It might be you think just, you know, peace with yourself or peace with God or, or a God that you really don't know much about or, or whatever it is. I, I mean, I don't know, but what I'm saying is, is that all of the questions and problems that existed then, they still exist now. And most people are asking the same questions that Luther asked when it comes to faith. Does God love me? How can I be forgiven? Or how can I, how can what's messed up in my life be put back together? How can I have true peace? 
That's why we need the gospel. That's why we need the gospel. And here's the truth. Here's the, here's the main, here's the main point of the wonderful light of the gospel that shines from the passage that we have, that we heard today. The gospel is wonderful because of what God has done for sinners through Jesus Christ. I mean, that's what you get right from this text. You walk away from just about anywhere in Romans, you will walk away with this thought. But I think specifically you will see here that the gospel is wonderful. It is wonderful because it tells us what God has done, not what we have to do. It tells us what God has done for sinful people through Jesus Christ. And today we will look at three wonders of the gospel that are seen here. We will look at how God loves sinners. We will look at how God justifies sinners. And we will look at how God reconciles sinners. And we do nothing for it. No stairs to climb. No prayers to pray. No rituals to perform. God has done everything necessary for our salvation. That's what we'll see today. So let's just begin looking at it. The first thing that you see is God loves sinners. God loves sinners. Look at the passage. Verse 6. For while we were still weak, at the right time Christ died for the ungodly. For one will scarcely die for a righteous person, though perhaps for a good person one would dare even to die. And then look at verse 8. But God shows. God commendeth his love. God demonstrates his love. God proves his love in that while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. Now, before we can understand the magnitude of this thought that God loves sinners, we have to begin with this first point, our depraved condition. It's clear in the text. And what Paul does, before, before he, he, he puts before these believers the truth of God's amazing love, he first tells them of their condition outside of Christ. And he does it in three ways. Look at it. First, we were weak. See it in verse 6? For a while, we were still weak. Most people hate weakness. And, and we resist weakness and we hate admitting that we cannot do something. Maybe that describes you, right? I mean, we hate it. We want to do it ourselves. We, uh, a kid trying to figure something out, they want to do it on their own. They don't want you to help. They want to push you away. We are like that by nature. We don't want to admit that we cannot do something. And listen, in the spiritual sense, we are completely helpless and unable to bring ourselves to God. That's what this text means. I mean, when he says we were weak, what he's saying is, Christian, before you ever were saved, you were incapable of bringing yourself to God. It is, again, that endless staircase. It is, again, that escalator that just speeds up. The more you keep trying to climb the steps, the farther you will feel away from the top. That's what it means to be weak. We are spiritually and morally bankrupt. But the other thing that Paul says here is in verse 6, he says that Christ died for the ungodly. That's the second description of our depraved condition. 
that he died for the ungodly. Paul shatters human goodness by calling us ungodly. And, and now our modern sensibilities find this assertion about human nature to be offensive. You ask the average person, what do you think about human nature? People will generally say, well, I mean, you know, we're overall good. But Paul says that we were ungodly, that are in, our, in a state outside of Christ, that the truth is we are completely unworthy of God's love, and in fact, we are entirely deserving of God's wrath. We are undeserving of His grace. The only thing that we deserve is hell and judgment. And again, you, you, can, you can just sense in our, in our current cultural moment, people gasp at that reality. But it is the truth. That's what Paul means when he says that we are ungodly, that we do not possess any kind of goodness or merit or morality of our own that would cause God to look at us and say he, that we are worthy of grace, love, and salvation. That's why Paul's last statement about our depraved condition in this passage is in verse 8 we're sinners i mean there is the summary statement about human beings we are sinners through and through that is our central identity before the bar of god's justice to be a sinner is to be a lawbreaker to be a trespasser and what Paul is doing here is he's demonstrating that there is no hope in human goodness or human perfection. There is no hope in our religious efforts or our moral posturing. None. What does he say in chapter 3? He says that the whole world stops and is guilty before God. He says there are none who do right. There are none who do good. None. There are none who are righteous. No, not one. And then in chapter 3, verse 23, all have sinned and fallen short of the glory of God. Why? Because we are sinners. Now, I, I realize what that does is, is that just kind of, that, that puts a weightiness on us, right? We just sang and we were excited about singing. And now we're hearing how sinful we are. And we're hearing about all these things that Paul says about our depraved condition. But here's the point. The point is this. Do you feel the sense of hopelessness? We need to. Do we feel the sense of helplessness as we read those descriptions? And the reason why we need to hear that is because otherwise we won't feel the, we, we won't feel the power of what Paul says in conjunction with this statement. And what is the amazing truth? What is the wonder of all wonders? In that while we were yet sinners, when we were ungodly, when we were without hope, what happened? Christ died for us. Now, now did you hear that? Now, I know we, we, we hear it, but do we really hear it? I, I kind of think that when, we, when we're in church a lot or we've been raised up in church, we, 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 we kind of get inoculated. We kind of get numb to that. You, you know what I mean? It's just like we, we've heard it so much that we forget of its power and its wonder. Christ died for us for us. Okay, let me think about this as a Christian. Just for, just, just, let me just put me here, okay? When I, when Kevin Ritter, when I was weak, when I was ungodly, when I was unlovable, when I was unworthy, when I was sinful, 
When I was his sworn enemy, what did Christ do? He died for me. He died for me. That, my friend, is the heartbeat. It is the pulse of the gospel. You're not going to get any theology higher than that. You're not. You're not going to go to seminary and earn the highest degrees you can earn and move beyond the wonder and the amazement and the astonishment of the truth that Jesus Christ died for me. That right there Paul puts before us to show us that it's the heartbeat of the gospel. And that's why when you go to 1 Corinthians 15, he says, I delivered to you as of first importance what I also received. What I, Paul, also received. When I was a terrorist and I was a church-hating murderer, this is what I received. What did Paul receive? That Christ died for our sins in accordance with the Scriptures. That he was buried and that he was raised on the third day in accordance with the Scriptures. And again, just look at the phrase, Christ died for our sins. First Thessalonians, love this passage. For God has not destined us for wrath, but what? But to obtain salvation through our Lord Jesus Christ. And what about Jesus? Look what he says. Who died for us so that whether we are awake or asleep, we might live for him. See, Paul never lost the wonder of the truth of God's love at the cross. But we Christians, we're, we're kind of like what happens as we grow into adulthood. What do we lose? We lose the wonder of being a child, right? We lose the wonder of, tell me that one more time. Let me hear that one more time. Just tell me the old, old story just one more time. Paul, just say it again. Just say it again. And God, help me. Help it to be as sweet to my ears as it was the first moment that I believed that Jesus Christ died for me. Is it no wonder that the hymn writer Charles Wesley wrote, Amazing love, how can it be that thou, my God, shouldst die for me? And indeed, there is no greater display of God's love than at the foot of the cross. And you know, it's interesting because Paul lingers here. That's why I'm lingering here. (laughs) Look look how he lingers. He he, he says, look look at the text. He says that while we were still weak, at the right time, Christ died for us. At the right time. Underline that. At the right time. In other words, what Paul's saying is, is that Christ's death on the cross was not a reaction But it was a part of God's eternal plan and purpose. God never intended to save anyone outside of His amazing grace through His only begotten Son who would die on the cross. There has never been another way. There wasn't another way in the Old Testament. There is not another way in the New Testament. There is not a new way that we're going to discover one day. Salvation will always be through Jesus Christ and what He did at that cross. And so what Paul does is, is he anchors the death of Christ in the center of human history. And that's what he means when he says, at the right time. To the Galatian church, he will say, what will he say? He will say, when the fullness of time had come, God sent forth his son, born of woman, born under the law, to redeem those who were under the curse of the law. God, in that moment, at that time, 
sent Jesus. And what that tells you is that Christianity, it is not a religion. It's not. And what I mean by that, it is not a religion whereby we invent some way to get to God. Religion is, Christianity is a historic faith. In other words, we are hinging everything we believe here, everything we're singing about, everything that we're saying here today, every class, that's, every, every lesson that's being taught, we are basing it on a historic event that Jesus Christ in human history on a Roman cross made for criminals over 2,000 years ago, hung on that cross, bled and died for you, for me, for our salvation. And so Paul says at the right time, Christ died for us so that we as believers will understand that this is part of God's eternal plan for our salvation. But I'm still going to (laughs) linger because in verse 7, Paul shows us that people don't usually die for others. Look, Look at the text. It says, for one will scarcely die for a righteous person. Though perhaps for a good person, one would dare even to die. And so what Paul does here is, again, he's he's lingering. And what he's doing is he's going to give us an analogy. And here's what Paul says. He says, seldom does a person sacrifice his life for another person of good character. And, And when it does happen, we're stirred. We're compelled by those examples, right? I, I mean, we, we we might think of of stories of war, where another soldier will throw himself on a grenade or or will take a bullet for someone else, another soldier, right? The, the, those are those, we we gravitate to those stories because they're they're powerful dis- depictions of sacrificial love. We like movies, we like songs that depict that kind of love. Sorry, I mean, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to give you some of my, my age perhaps here. Peter Cetera in the Karate Kid 2 movie, I Am the Man Who Will Fight for Your Honor. Anybody remember that? Hopefully you do, right? I mean, that song. I used to, as a kid, I used to listen to that song and think, wow, what amazing love that, that the Karate Kid has for this girl, right? <laughs> Brian Adams, right? Robin Hood. Everything I do, I do it for you, right? And he gets to that, that bridge where he says, you know, I'll fight for you, I'll die for you. And then you're just like, yeah, who, who, me, I want to meet this woman that I'm going to die for, right? Right, but you, you follow me? That's rare. I mean, we, we sing about it, but we know that that's, that, I mean, it happens, but it's generally rare. And, and what Paul's saying here is, is he's saying that, you know, there, there are a few And they're good when we hear them, but there are few people who will die for a good person. But you know what's really unheard of? Someone dying for a wretch, a scoundrel, a vile offender. And what Paul's showing us is, by way of analogy, is the gospel does something that we don't expect. We don't expect the God of the universe, who is holy and perfect... And completely righteous in the person of his son, the Lord Jesus Christ, who never sinned and never committed any wrong. And he will go and he will die for sinners. I mean, the gospel gives us something we don't expect. 
The God of the universe dying for wretched sinners. And, and that's why the, if, if we're kind of building to the crescendo of this point, verse 8 says, and, and look at the way in the English it's translated, you have this hyphen because it's almost like it's building. Because in verse 8, Paul put, I mean, here we are at the top of the mountain, and Paul says, but God, but God did something that is unheard of in human terms. He showed his love for us in that while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. And so here God's love is displayed. And Paul says that God proved his love for us and that while we were yet, emphasis on yet, while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. And, and here's, here's the punchline. He didn't love us because he saw our worth. Now, you'll hear that on, on Christian radio and a hundred other different, uh, different forms of mediums, but here's the truth of Scripture. God didn't love us because He saw our worthiness. We are unworthy. God didn't love us because of some hidden good. There is nothing good. God didn't love us because He could see some future potential that we possessed. No, we were running straight toward hell. He loved us when we were unlovable. And could do nothing to make ourselves attractive and acceptable before Him. He loved us in our depraved, wretched condition and sent His only begotten Son. And that is why God's love is selfless, undeserving, and it is fully and immensely displayed at the cross. And it is the greatest love beyond our imagination. And here's why. Are you ready for this? Here's why. Because that's not what we're used to. We're used to, I do this, that makes you love me. I do this, that makes you, that makes you respond to me. And the gospel says we can do nothing, but God loves us anyway. And his supreme act of his love is at the cross where his son dies. I want to say two things quickly. Some people have formed the notion that God will never accept them until they clean their act up. Some people have formed the notion that, that they have to fix themselves or they have to make themselves acceptable. But hear me, friend, today. The gospel invites you to come to Jesus just as you are. Just as you are. And you will never be the same. And then I want to say something to the Christian. So if you're here today and you've never, maybe you've heard that you're hearing the gospel for the first time. I want to invite you to a Christ that says, you don't have to clean your act up. You don't have to, you don't have to jump through hoops. All you have to do is admit you're a sinner and come to Christ in faith and repentance and he will save you now. And to the believer, what I want to say to the believer this morning is, is this, is that Christians who struggle, that we, 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 we know the gospel, but we struggle with the idea that God loves me. If you doubt this, do you want to, do you know what I want to encourage you to do? Look to the cross. If you ever doubt God's love for you, the gospel calls you to continually look at the cross and you will never doubt his love for you. So, the application is very simple. Here is the gospel application. God loves sinners. God loves sinners. And when Martin Luther discovered that, discovered that truth, when he discovered, I don't have to climb the stairs to the, uh, to, to, I don't have to climb the stairs in Rome. I don't have to perform all of these rituals. I don't have to do these things. God has loved me by sending his son to the cross. It changes life. 
But, but the other part of the gospel application that I want you to get is in the form of a question. Have you experienced the saving love of God? Have you? I hope you have. But there's something else that is a wonder of the gospel. Paul also tells us that God justifies sinners. God justifies sinners. Look at, look at verse, look at verse nine. So, so we move to verse nine and look what the apostle Paul says. He says, since therefore we have now been justified by his blood, much more shall we be saved by him from the wrath of God. So here is the second wonder of the gospel. God loves sinners. God justifies sinners. And so we learn this, the, how, how wonderful this is because we are saved through his blood. That's what the text says. We've been saved through his blood. Paul is referring here again to the truth that Jesus died for us. But what he's getting at here is, is he's digging deeper into this divine love the cross was more than just the supreme demonstration of God's love. We are saved through the shed blood of Jesus Christ on the cross because he paid for our sin. He atoned for our sin. Sin deserves death. And guilt must be atoned. And Jesus, when he went to the cross, he satisfied the righteous demands of God's law on our behalf. It is done. It is finished. In the truest sense of the statement, everything necessary for our salvation is totally complete. Because on the cross, God's justice was upheld. Romans chapter 3, verse 23 to 25. God upheld His justice. And the just justifier of sinners poured all of the judgment that our sins deserve upon His Son, the Lord Jesus Christ. And therefore... It really has been paid. If your faith is in Christ, then your sins are paid for. Now, let me, let me, let me tell you this. This is the nail that goes right into the coffin of religion. If it's true, hear me. If it's true that Jesus did everything necessary for us to have a right standing with God, if we by faith trust Him and Him alone for salvation, then, then what does religion have to say? What are you going to add to that? What are we going to do that's going to be greater than what Jesus has done? Amen. <laughs> and look what Paul says. He says, we have now been justified. That's a, that's a past present tense. It is, it is, it is that we now stand in a right standing before God. So here's the thing. We're not made right with God through the virtues that we keep, through the rituals that we follow, through the evil that we avoid. We're not made right with God by being better than other people. We're not made right with God through religious rituals or dress. We're not made right with God through our spiritual disciplines, through the prayers we pray. We're not made right with God by keeping the Ten Commandments, by following the Golden Rule. We're not made right with God. I'm not right with God today because I feel right with God. I'm right with God because Jesus Christ atoned for my sin. 
I mean, do you know, do you see how that just, that just blows the, the dark shadow of religion. It just blows it far away and the glorious sunlight of Christ's redeeming love shines right upon us and says, by faith in Christ alone, you are right with the living God. Luther, because of, of, of all that he had experienced, and it's just a fascinating story, was known to sometimes just speak to the devil. And I read somebody once said that if, if the devil was ever really chasing one specific person, it had to be Martin Luther. And Luther once spoke to the devil who wasn't necessarily physically in front of him, and he said, devil, and I don't recommend this, right? So just in case, make sure I clarify this, all right? I'm just... I'm giving you an example of the divine truth that he spoke. And he would just, he, he just said, he, he actually said this to Christians. When the devil makes you doubt, when the devil tries to bring up to you what a sinner you are, remind the devil what a great savior Christ is. <laughs> and just remind him of everything that Jesus did to make you right with the God of heaven. And he will be quiet and go away. And so, and so this morning, what I want you to see is we are saved through his blood. But I, I, I want to take this just one step farther because the text does. Again, look at what he says in verse 10. He says, for if while we were enemies, we were, uh, sorry, at the end of verse 9. He says, since therefore we have now been justified by his blood. He says, much more. Shall we be saved by him from the wrath of God? In other words, what he's saying is, if right now I am right with God because of faith that is placed in Christ, what about the day of judgment? And what Paul does is, is he looks to the final day of judgment. What about the final day? What about that day that we stand before the judgment seat of God, which Paul mentions in Romans chapter 2? Where he says, but because of your hard and impenitent heart, you are storing up wrath for yourself on the day of wrath when God's righteous judgment will be revealed. Will we escape God's wrath on that day? The medieval church would have said no. The gospel says yes. And that question terrified Luther and his contemporaries. But here's the answer of the gospel. Paul makes the argument. If we are forgiven of all of our sins now through the blood of Christ on the cross, then we will most certainly escape the wrath of God on the day of judgment. Faith in Christ destroys fear of judgment. So you don't have to, you do not escape eternal judgment through religious performance, through penance, through purgatory. You escape eternal judgment through faith in Christ. That's what the text is saying to us. If you're confident today that your sins are forgiven right now, don't you worry about that day that you pass through the silver lining of death and you stand before the living God. Have no fear because the God who will receive you is the same God who gave his son on that cross for your salvation. You have nothing to fear and you have everything to look forward to. That's why Jesus said in John 5 verse 24, Truly, truly, I say to you, whoever hears my word and believes him who sent me has eternal life. Forget Luther for a minute. Listen to the Son of God. He does not come into judgment. 
but has passed from death to life. He will not come into judgment. I remember as a kid going to camp meeting. We went to camp meeting down in Kentucky. And I'll never forget the song that this one family sang. I mean, it just stuck with me from childhood. It was called The Only Fire I'll Ever Feel. And, and the song just basically celebrated the truth that there is a place somewhere below I've heard and read about, and they say that people, when they go, they never come back out. A place of torment for lost souls who've turned the Lord of way. And they say the fire burns all night because there is no day. And then the chorus. But I escaped that awful place when Jesus saved my soul. Wow. That right there is what Paul is saying. No more wrath. So let me ask you this question by way of application. What is your standing before God right now? You say, I, I mean, I don't know. I'm trying to be a good person. What, what I'm saying to you is stop trying to do anything and flee to Christ. And put your faith in him and he will save you now. And you will be cleansed, forgiven, made right with God, and you will be with him forever because of Christ. Have you been saved through his blood? Will you be saved from God's wrath? That's the questions that we should think about when we think about the truth that God justifies sinners. All right, so where have we been? Three wonders, right? We've got two of them. God loves sinners. God justifies sinners. Here's the third and last thing that Paul says. God reconciles sinners. God reconciles sinners. I mean, we could preach a hundred wonders today, but we're just going to look at the three here. Look at verse 10. For if... While we were enemies, we were reconciled to God by the death of His Son. Much more. Now that we are reconciled, shall we be saved by His life? Do, do, do you see what, what Paul says now? is Now he goes to the fact that we are reconciled. Here's the final wonder of the Gospel in these verses. Reconciliation. And once again, Paul goes to what we were outside of Jesus. He says we were rebels. He employs another description of our condition outside of Christ. We were enemies. This means that we held hostility toward God. A resentment of His authority. Have you ever had a child or teenager, when you told them to do something, they whisper under their breath? Right? And then you say, what did you say? Say it again. <laughs> say it again. <laughs> I didn't hear what you said. Why don't you say that to me so I can hear it, right? And you're flexing your authority. See, see, to be an enemy means that you hate the authority of the other. But you know, this is more than just a disgruntled youth. To be enemies makes us like Al-Qaeda, Al-Qaeda, like the Taliban, like ISIS. I mean, that, that really is the idea of enemies. We were in the complete opposite camp. But it's not just that. God also had wrath for us. Remember verse 9? John Stott writes that while there is a wicked opposition of the sinner to God, don't forget there's a holy opposition of God to the sinner. But notice what God does. Though we were enemies, what did he do? Look at the text. It says we were reconciled to God. How? How? 
by the death of his son. See, see what the cross accomplishes? We have now been reconciled. And that word reconciled is a powerful word. It means making peace after a war or a fight. And here is the wonder of the gospel. God makes peace through the death of His Son. The cross dealt with sin, which kept us from God and caused us to be hostile toward Him. And what the cross has done is it has removed. The sin is removed when we believe. And we are now able to approach God as our Father And we are able to enter a relationship with Him through His Son, Jesus Christ. And what Paul says is, is that this will never change. Look look at the text. It, It says we are now reconciled. But we will always be reconciled. Do do you see how it's worded? He, He, it's just like He did with the fact that we're justified. He says, we have been reconciled, we were reconciled to God by the death of His Son. And if that has happened, If I'm right now in a relationship with God where he is, he is, he has made peace and he has accepted me and adopted me into his family, how much more now that we are reconciled shall we be saved by his life? In other words, Paul shows that this status of reconciliation, it will never change. You know why? Because Jesus lives. He has risen from the dead. He did not stay on that cross, but he went into the grave. He came out from the grave. He ascended into heaven. He is right now at the Father's right hand. And he ever lives to make intercession for us. You are at peace with God in Christ. So, 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 so do you see? Do you see how the Gospels answered these questions? How can I know God loves me? The cross. How can I know I'm right with God? Look at the cross. How can I be reconciled with God? How can I have peace? Go to the cross and by faith trust in that one who died on that cross for sinners. But I love the way Paul closes this little section out. Verse 11. He says, more than that. If you thought all this was good, we also rejoice in God through our Lord Jesus Christ through whom we have now received reconciliation. We rejoice in God. And I think Paul means everything that we do to express joy. We sing. We pray. We shout. We weep. We rejoice. Why? Because we're just emotional? No. Because of Christ. Because of the wonders of the gospel. That's why Wesley wrote, Oh, for a thousand tongues to sing, my great Redeemer's praise, the glories of my God and King, and what? The triumphs of His grace. So three wonders we have looked at. Let me ask you a question in closing. Is the gospel wonderful to you? Is it wonderful to you? Why does it matter That God loves sinners and justifies sinners and reconciles sinners. Why, why does it matter? Well, when we think back to the point about reconciliation, you'll see on the screen, are we at peace with God through Christ? Do you have a relationship with God who's this God who saves? Can you rejoice 
over all that God has done in the gospel. But this morning, this matters because it's the basis of our assurance. And that's what I want to conclude with this morning. There is therefore now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. Christian, you will never have assurance apart from the gospel. Assurance of salvation. If we don't have assurance of salvation, there's no hope. But you can have assurance of salvation today. But, but, the, but the, the other reason this matters is, is because it is the reason for worship and service. Romans 12 says, I appeal to you, therefore, brothers, by the mercies of God, to present your bodies as a living sacrifice, holy and acceptable to God, which is your spiritual worship. The gospel is the banner over our lives. It is the reason for everything. We worship today. We sing today. We serve together today. We are here today because of the God who has saved us through this wonderful gospel. So, I pray this morning that you know God's love through the work of Jesus. I pray that you have peace with him through the sacrifice he made on the cross. And I pray as well that you have been made right with God through his work on Calvary. Let's stand. And as we stand this morning, we're going to sing the gospel. Maybe you're here today and you have, you realize for the first time, I, I'm, I'm not a believer. I, 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 for the first time, I get it. I understand what Christ has done. And you want to embrace him as Savior today. Call upon him now and he'll save you. If you're here and you want to talk more about this gospel, I'll be down in front. Christian, celebrate what Jesus has done. Worship him. Praise his name for the wonders of the gospel. Let us pray and then we will sing. Father, thank you for what your son has done for us. Thank you that you love sinners. Thank you that you justify sinners. And thank you that you reconcile sinners through your son and his work on the cross. That is the wonderful news of the gospel. May it refresh our hearts this morning. May it renew our spirits. And may anyone here today who has never been saved, may they be saved even now. In Jesus' name, amen.